Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And boy, I will tell you, you guys know I say this a lot, that I'm excited about today's guest. But I really am really excited about today's guest, Dr. Caroline Leaf. And she's somebody that I have admired from afar for several years, really back even since I started Brain Trust. But but Dr. Leaf is a communication pathologist and cognitive neuroscientist with a master's and PhD in communication pathology and a bachelor of science in logopedics, specializing in cognitive and metacognitive neuropsychology. Now that might sound like a mouthful, but let me really tell you what she's about. Her passion is to help you and me see the power of the mind to change the brain and find our purpose in life. Now she's written books called Switch on Your Brain, which was one of my first ones I was introduced to her, which is amazing. Think and Eat Yourself Smart. I think I could probably use maybe three or four versions of that book. The Perfect You and Think, Learn, and Succeed. And her most recent, we're going to talk about at the end, and don't worry, you're going to have lots of resources today at the end of this episode, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. Dr. Leaf, it is a privilege and an honor to have you on the Driving Change Podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's great to meet you. And I'm excited to have a conversation with you with such a common shared interest. That's exciting. Well, as uh, I did give you a little forewarning that the first question we always ask our guests is we want to learn a little backstory, yeah. like the, the origin story of, you know, you can go all the way back to your three-year-old Caroline, or you can take <laughs> us as far back as you want, but tell us your origin story, where you come from and, and why it is that your life journey has led you to be so passionate about this work in, in neuro, neuroscience and cognitive behavior for people. Tell us that story. Absolutely. Well, I was born in Zimbabwe, grew up in South Africa, and I've been in the States for the last 13 years. And we travel globally teaching people basically about the mind, psychoneurobiology, mind-brain-body connection. But it all began when I was very young, wanting to be a neurosurgeon. That was really what I wanted to be for a long, many years. I even got into medicine. And then I realized I don't want to be cutting up dead brain. I mean, or just cutting, dealing with people that are asleep. I wanted to understand more about humans and the mind and you know what we what you said as well in our pre-conversation was what's common to us is our humanity and I have seen the trajectory over the past 40 years um, change from focusing on our humanity to not focusing on our humanity so we've become so advanced with sciences especially in the, in the field, field of neuroscience I mean we still have so 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 much further to go but we've got so much more understanding of the human brain that we've become very neuro, neuro reductionistic so I don't put myself in that category but in general there's been so much focus on the brain 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 that we've actually forgotten about the power behind the brain which is the mind and that is really um, a kind of synopsis from the future back to the past of my origin story when I was sitting in one of my neuroscience lectures and back in the 80s neuroscience was in its infancy the brain they didn't believe the brain could change the understanding of mind being separate from brain was pretty established which changed now now it's kind of mind and brain are seen as the same thing in a lot of scientific fields um, which is you know not really accurate but at that stage they didn't believe the brain could change and I remember sitting and listening to this neuroscience lecture and 
And we were sitting in, I remember we were distinctly, we were in a in a class, in a just after doing grand rounds in a hospital and in the lecture room. And they were saying, your brain can't change. You've got to teach patients to compensate. I mean, they've had a traumatic brain injury and all this kind of stuff. And I put up my hand and I said, I can't reconcile what you're saying because our experiences are different every moment of every day. I'm different to how now to how I was when I walked into this lecture, for example. And if our, our experiences are always changing and our mind is processing our experiences, the brain is where the mind shows up. So the brain has to change. So that's kind of a summary of a long discussion. And that professor said, well, that's a ridiculous question because the brain can't change. And I said, is that really so? And I said, and we had a discussion and long story short, I started doing work, work on traumatic brain injury. And I had a few professors really supporting me and saying, okay, well, let's see what happens. Let's see if you can change a person's functioning who's really severely damaged. Then, you know, we're talking. And I proceeded to show a 35 to 75% improvement in people that had been written off by neurologists as being a vegetable. And these people like went back to university, they went back to educational competence, bought and beyond, some of them even were really battling in um, in, in, in the um, sort of areas like subjects like mathematics and ended up becoming math geniuses. And it's not that I did some magic with them. It was that I actually showed them what the, uh, helped them to understand what the mind was and how to use the mind to drive the changes in the brain and the body. So the way that the mind was showing up in the brain was different. It was more organized, more driven, more systematic, and therefore the change changes in the brain, that the brain would then change, which then changed the biology of the body and the brain, and therefore changed how the person was showing up academically, socially, cognitively, emotionally, intellectually, etc. And I showed that, and I did some of the first neuroplasticity research in my field, and that just spurred 38 years later, here I am still doing research. I spent many, many years in South Africa in during the apartheid transition and post-apartheid era with Mandela and, and seeing all the damage um, prior, prior to Mandela and all the post-damage. So I had a chance to work in education, in corporate, in medicine, in um in socially challenged in the in the socially challenged environments like that, seeing the trauma, seeing the implications of of you know racism and of um all these different things that the, the very big and small traumas of life, um, looking at things like war trauma in Rwanda, that kind of thing. So I spent a lot of time in the field. I didn't bring people into a lab and create and simulate experiments. I just decided that wasn't going to be real. So I just dived in to try and understand the mind and the brain and humans and what is this whole thing and what are thoughts and what are memories and 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 is there any level of agency that we have? And 38 years later, many many research studies later, many books later, um, I have really can't, we can sit you with confidence telling you that your mind is first cause. It's so powerful. It is pretty much the 90 to 99% of who you are. And is it is the driving force behind the brain. So the brain is incredibly important. It's a phenomenally complex structure. It's, you know, we often liken it to a computer, but it's way beyond a computer. Just the circuitry in the 200 specializations in your brain that give the rise to the uniqueness of Jeff, for example, within that has multiple circuitry that not any computer yet has been able to simulate. And But that's not going to do anything. If you and I were dead now, there would be no response in our brain, but you and I are alive. So if I link us up to the some of the technology I use, like QEEG, we would see a massive response in this conversation of all kinds of, of um, energy frequencies and activity between the two parts of the brain and the circuitry and the different, the different specialization. We would see a lot going on, but if you we were dead, there wouldn't be anything going on. So I have to ask the question, which is what I have asked for 38 years, is if that's the case, if there is this 
if this, they, we see this response now with the technology we have, but how does that actually play out? It plays out in how you're communicating. So how are you communicating with the world through what you say, what you do, your actions, your work, your 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 philosophies, everything about you is how you are communicating, Jeff, to the world. So if we look at your communication, elements of your communication will be phenomenal. The majority of it will be, but there'll be pathological points in between. And those are that then those are then come out as patterns and affect things like relationships and behaviors. And if you look at those, they have signals. And if you track the signals back, you'll find that there is a thought behind that. And then that thought is this whole thing that has a root. And when you actually go to the whole process of being a thought detective and go from your patterns and your signals, the patterns to the signals to the actual interpretation right down to the root and you deconstruct this, you can find out why you have that and you can change it. And that was the work. This That's kind of a big picture overview of what I've been trying to understand and help people do in a very clinical sense. I practiced for 25 years clinically with people with dementias and autism and severe learning disabilities and even cerebral palsy and, and um, traumatic brain injuries, traumatic encephalopathy, people with sports injuries, um, hectic traumas, life. And then I soon started adapting that down, thinking, hey, listen, I need this every day. I need this mind management every day. So adapting it down to be able to use all the time. And then in the classroom and in the corporate environment and with kids as, as young as three, and we've got a mind. Our mind is predominant. And so before I dive into that, that's a, a big picture back end story, but it's kept me motivated. It still keeps my story going. My story is still not written, fully finished. And I'm going to carry on researching the rest of my life because the more insight we have into the mind, the more we will be human, the more we will be humans that actually operate in love in the way we're supposed to. So long answer, Jeff, to your, <laughs> to your first question. No, it's great. It's brilliant. So, so all I can imagine is, is there's this this very curious little girl growing up who has this insatiable curiosity about her. And she becomes a little bit obsessed with the mind as she gets into school and learning and goes on to college and then starts to challenge the status quo and the thinking of the traditional people who, you know, that's the problem, right? When we just look at status quo and think that's the only thing there is. So I, exactly. I'm just picturing this amazingly curious girl who turns into this amazingly curious young woman who then pursues this passion of challenging status quo and why does it have to be the way everyone said it is that doesn't make sense and that curiosity has led you to this being this amazing researcher and communicator and collaborator and today and, and let me see if I can simplify a concept and I want you to correct me on this because I love this idea that our body's full of organs and, and one of those organs is the brain the brain is simply an organ but the mind is the the energy source not just consciousness, but it's the energy. It's almost like the power plant that then drives the energy that powers the organs. And we've mm -hmm. all, and we've thought of the mind and the brain a lot of times collectively as the same thing mm -hmm. for a lot of a lot of a lot of years. A lot of researchers, and and you're saying no, the mind is energy. The mind is the power source that then activates the brain, and the physical structures of the brain can be changed based on the direction of the power source of the mind. Is that right? Beautifully summarized. You said that beautifully. And thank you for your very nice description before that as well. I really appreciate that. Curiosity is so important. That's how we keep growing and we never stay the same. So it's, it's uh, yes. Yeah, so that is the thing. Mind is first cause. So the difference between you and I and a dead person is our mind. Our mind enables us to have this conversation, to process this conversation, to go back and forth, to have discussions. As I'm talking and as you talking, all kinds of existing thought networks with their memories embedded because a thought is made of memories. 
memories. They're not the same thing. A thought is the big tree, the concept, and it's got all the the memories, which are all the detail, emotions and the data and and the interpretations and the questions and the choices and all that stuff. That's inside the thought tree. And as we, um, and uh, every day, there is no thought tree growing. There is no expression of the thought tree. But as an alive person, my mind is that energetic driving force. It's the gravitational fields. It's the electromagnetic fields. It's the work that Einstein did. It's, It's the work that they, Nobel Prize winners are winning for their work in gravitational fields where we have unique ones around us as humans and we have that you do an ECEG and you do an ECG you do an EKG those are all energetic responses that are being picked up by by um, technology of the organs so we can see when someone's alive that there is a response happening it's not in a dead person because people always say hey chicken and egg situation no it's not chicken and egg it's mind first because mind is the is the force that actually creates and we see that mind is the force that creates because as mind hits brain as that mind energy hits the brain as the, and psychologically the energy is how we think and feel and choose as that hits brain there is this response in the brain and an immediate response in every cell of the body therefore every organ every system of the body to this incoming energy field when someone dies they weigh less because as they die, the mind is no longer there and there's just the substance. And so a substance needs to be energized. And, and what we talk about in science and genetics, as well as in brain research, is that the brain and gen- genes are not self-emergent. So you can't make a gene do anything. The mind, It doesn't do it on its I can hold a, a brain, a dead brain in my hands and a dead person. Nothing's going to happen. But we're alive, so things are happening. We're making a million plus new cells every second. We have short, medium, long-term gene reactions happening 24-7. We are... We are alive. We, we, we're changing. Our structure is constantly changing. And we, well, our mind is the power that actually drives that change. So the emphasis of neuroreductionism, which has really happened over the last 40 years, where we've learned so much about the brain, has made people think that mind is brain. And it's not. that's been a, the dominant sort of messaging from the media, from certain scientific, uh, sort of a certain t- scientific leaning. And it's wrong. And, it's, and it's, in, it's impacted our mental health because it's defined mental health in a very narrow way. And it's it's taken a lot of hope away because the mental health is being is being seen as either you're healthy or ill. Either you don't have cancer, you do have cancer. You have a mental illness, you don't have mental illness. Meanwhile, that you can't say that you can you can have cancer and you cannot have cancer. But when it comes to mental illness, you're a human, so there isn't an illness involved. There is a mental state involved, and that mental state's either in a um, very messy state, a very extreme messy state, you know, degrees of severity, or it's in the process of being messy but being cleaned up, being managed and repaired. And that's the normal, that's, I hate the word normal, but that's the average state of being a human. It is we make messes and we recognize them in order to repair and in order to grow. And that's mind work. No one's going to do that if they did. That's happening all the time. We're using our mind and the listeners and viewers are using their minds to process our conversation. And they're taking this conversation and 400 billion actions per second. There's this force going into the brain and the brain is responding. The brain and body are responding. And you're building this conversation into the brain as these thought trees, which are these neuroplastic changes in the brain. But in addition, there are genetic changes in in every single one of the 37 to 100 trillion cells of your body. So your gene code is changing as you are using your mind. And I saw this in my research with telomeres, that we are changing the structure of the the telomere is the end of a chromosome. And they they are the things that are very involved in, in the DNA change 
changes, which then help us to make new cells in amongst many other things. So those but are the it, ones that get shorter as we age, right? We lose they, the ability. Not to... necessarily. They 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 get they they can actually because you keep making new cells. So your um they in certain areas like your skin gets wrinkly, and yes, that does change. But in terms of mind, mind never ages. Mind just matures. Very very different. So the brain also has a different kind of maturity to um, the body. The body the body cells. The brain actually it was correct use will get better with age. You know, it's like a good wine. So the brain actually gets better with age if we use it properly. It will get worse with age if we don't use it properly. And so therefore, we there was a lot of research that I've been also speaking against that comes kind of swimming upstream as well, which is saying that the brain ages and gets worse. But that research was done on people that were sick and dying. But if you look at the actual, now we have the technology to look at people that are high functioning, that are in the prime of their life, that are managing their mess, that are dealing with their stuff, that are processing their pain. And what we see is that there's a tremendous wisdom that comes with age that we know that is reflected in the brain. And therefore the brain just, it just changes, but it doesn't get worse. So those that are driving the brain in the right direction, you do get old and die eventually. But your brain, it doesn't mean because you're older that your skills are dropping if you're managing those. And that that's the key. So it's very much a practice thing from the age of, of infancy. We should be teaching our kids to understand the concept of mind management so that we're proactive in protecting the brain and the body. Because whatever we do with the mind is going to impact the brain and the body because the mind shows up and uses the brain and the body to store, to express, and to communicate. So it's as you experience something like this podcast, it's your mind, the all the electromagnetics, et cetera, the physics side that take that energy. It's your your psychological side that makes sense, the think, feel, choose, that is built into your brain as these thought trees that look literally look like plants with roots. And these are all, this is a thought tree made of memories, like a a, thought, a, a tree is made of branches and roots. And that is that thing is changing the structure of your brain. And then this is how we show up. Now, that's a healthy version, but you also get, if you have an adverse experience, you're going to have a toxic version. So that the whole thing is distorted, whereas these proteins are folded correctly and the neurochemistry is correct and the electrical chemical balance is correct. These, it's all distorted because the experience is distorted. And we wired for love, we wired for optimism, we wired for survival. So anything that threatens that is not meant to be there. But we we have allowance in our neurophysiology to make these mistakes as being like little experimenters because we don't know what's coming up. We can't control people, events or circumstances, things happen, aka COVID, life, etc. But we can change how these play out. We don't have to keep these. These are very damaging to the brain and the body. They cause brain damage. They create a reaction in our body, in the immune system, the telomeres, the telomeres change, the telomeres being the ends of chromosomes, as we mentioned earlier on. So, But none of that's cast in stone, which is amazing. Our physical nature is not cast in stone. Now, having said that, we can have a toxic experience. We process it, the toxic energy waves, the toxic interpretation. We build this toxic version in our brain that impacts all our entire body, all 37 to 100 trillion cells of our brain and our body. And we have this toxic reaction so that affects maybe our heart or, cardio, or cardiovascular system, immune system, whatever. It's different in every person. But that isn't the end state or the end of the story. You can recognize that because your brain, mind, and body or psychoneurophysiology is going to tell you a story. It's going to say, hey, 
your survival is threatened, exactly like when we have the COVID virus or something like that, your immune system starts fighting it. Your entire mind, brain, and body, your psychoneurophysiology is all designed to protect. So therefore, it immediately starts fighting back. And, this, and, and, the, and the reason we know it's fighting back is because it gives us signals. And those signals are, are there as warning signals, as clues for us to become thought detectives, to go and say, oh gosh, this is not who I am. I'm wired for love. At my core, my identity is amazing. I can do something that no one else can do. I'm there to give to the world and to, to make the world a better place. But this has happened and I'm not doing that. My communication has become pathological. My relationships are not functioning as well. My I've got this constant sense of depression that's weighing me down. You can't have depression, but it's an emotional warning signal that you flat and you can't function and you're battling to get out of bed or whatever. You, your behaviors have changed, your perspective, whatever. There's a whole gamut of stuff that can can be that we can describe as signals and we can break that down into a more logical pattern in a moment. But the point is that when your body, when you've gone through something and you haven't processed it, you, when you go through something, it makes a mental mess. It makes a brain mess. It makes a body mess. So therefore your mind, brain and body say, hey, signals, pay attention, be a detective and find out why. So we need to go from the pattern to the signal, to the interpretation, to the root. And we need to deconstruct and reconstruct embrace process and reconceptualize to get this to become this. Now, it doesn't mean the story has gone away. Whatever has happened to you has happened to you, but your story doesn't have to become your destiny. So therefore, your story can't change, but how you manage your story can change, how you manage that pain. And that's the process that mind is mind-driven. Yeah, that's brilliant. Let me let me ask this, because again, I'm a visual processor, and I love this idea of the thought tree and this whole analogy. And I think about a person's life experiences from the time they're in the womb until where they are today. And every single one of their experiences kind of builds upon it, and it becomes yes. part of their own narrative, their own belief. And their, Lots of trees. Lots of trees in the brain. Lots of trees, right. Yeah. Uh, so, so it becomes part of their own narrative that they tell themselves, which become part of their beliefs, which become embedded into the fuel in the soil of their mind so that then when they have a new experience, the soil of their mind, and maybe it's driven by fear. Maybe the nutrients in their soil is, are fear-based, so they tend to push up toxic thought trees. Whereas someone who's worked through that, their soil is one of love and positivity and empathy and fill in the blank. So no matter what they experience, they've trained themselves to push a thought tree up that's going to be healthy, which is going to push out positivity, which is going to push out more love and healing. It's like that. But you can't just replace one with the other. That will work. What you said is a beautiful description. But that will work only if this is deconstructed and reconstructed. So energy is never lost. Those are some of the basic physics laws. Energy is always transferred. So this thing is energy is keeping this alive. And it's an energy connected to the pain. And this is volcanic in nature. Like volcanoes will stay alive until the source is eliminated. And when they burn out, then the volcano will go, the lava will pour out, it will cool down, and the, the soil becomes very enriched. So the field that grows over the volcano area is much, much healthier than it was before. Incredible minerals in the soil. And that's why people make makeup products. And you see huge, like in Iceland, which is all volcanoes, they have the most phenomenal green fields and, and incredible um, vegetation and so on like that. That's what happens. That's that's kind of another thing, what you're saying and taking another analogy. If, however, we just think, okay, that's the bad thought. Let me just replace it with a positive one. So that would be using um, affirmations incorrectly or prayers incorrectly, where you're just thinking, okay, I'm not going to deal with this. I know it's there. I know there's some sort of a root. You may even have quite good insight into the root. But what I'm going to do is just, 
drown this out with a statement or a prayer or a yeah. comment or that's putting a band-aid on a bullet wound um, or it's just chopping the head off the weed where it is temporarily dealt with but the weed, the roots are still there so the weed will grow back so what we have to do is a complete transference process where we are transferring the energy from the toxic to the healthy that's the deconstruction reconstruction process and that takes time that rewiring using the mind to rewire the brain and heal the body takes time it's not going to happen in a day or three weeks it takes cycles of 63 days maybe sometimes multiple cycles um, of 63 days in order to rewire the brain so let's talk a little bit about that because you, you've mentioned the phrase mind management several times today. And I think that's a big part of your process that you're talking about, right? This is part of that mind management process. And, and I was also, I was, I, I had bought into the, the old, the old myth of, well, 21 days to form a new habit, but your research has shown through using the neurocycle that no, no, it's a little different than that. You just mentioned 63 days for these really deconstructing and reconstructing. It's almost like you're, you're digging up the soil, right? You're taking it all yeah. the way down, digging so up the, the soil, up ends. pulling the roots up, but not, but not just that, but you're deconstructing to, to what's in the soil. Mm-hmm. And if you find out that it turns out that the nutrients in your soil were fear, then this process, this neurocycle will allow you to figure that out so that you can kind of put in some fresh topsoil uh, exactly. with something better. Is and that is that some- what this is? Pretty much, because this is going to still, the reconstructed version, the reconceptualized version is not that I don't know my story. You still, maybe if you had a terrible abuse or something and you talk about it, it makes you really sad because you still remember, but you've changed how it plays out into your future. So whereas before it was this, if it's in this state, and I'm looking through this. This is my perspective of life. So therefore, I'm seeing everything in a very distorted view. Like the, the toxic I'm shame, state. I'm, yeah, I, I hate myself. I'm shame. I'm not worthy. I can't have a relationship. This always happens to me. Oh, this is, you know, that is coming from that toxic, toxic root. So when you deconstruct, no longer do you think I'm shame. It's no, I'm not shame. I felt it because of. I felt the depression because of. But you can't have shame. You can't be shame. You can't be depression. You can't be anxiety. You can't have a clinical diagnosis, even though that's the language that's used, because anxiety isn't like cancer. Cancer is an it. Diabetes is an it. You can have them. You can't have depression. You experience it Mm. as a warning signal. Very different. It's a warning signal. It's a response. It's hugely important because it's your non-conscious mind telling your conscious mind through your subconscious mind that there is something that is very disruptive in your psychoneurobiology that if you don't pay attention, it's going to start exploding. And then that explosion is going to affect everything because when you're exploding, your emotions are completely out of control. So you're going to respond in ways that you don't want to. So your communication is pathological. And in that case, you, uh, you that makes things worse. And if you don't deal with it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you travel down the severity the severity scale and then people start giving you worse and worse and worse labels and worse and worse and worse drugs. And But at the core, you're amazing and life's happened and that's why you're responding. And what we have to do is unpack why that's happening and then help to reconstruct. And that's hard work. And yes, the 21 days is a myth. It was a myth. I talk about it in my book. It was a surgeon years ago in the 60s that um, spoke about sort of cycles of three weeks um, for healing. Now, there is a valid biological base that three weeks, it, it seems to take, like, for example, if you get a blister, it takes around about three weeks for the immune system to work with the body to produce the stem cells to heal the blister. And the more severe the, um, the, the damage to the brain and the body physically, the more of these cycles you need. So let's say that you've had a a major cancer surgery or something, and that's obviously kind of major, three weeks won't be enough for your body to heal. You're going to need maybe 
20, uh, 20 lots of three weeks or something like that. So the concept of three weeks does a certain level of work, but it doesn't take you through the completion process. So I wanted to see, well, how do we get to the point where we start having these changes in our behavior? Like I told with my patients earlier on, how do I get someone who had a traumatic brain injury, couldn't even function on a, um, on a second grade level and they were in 12th grade, how do you get them back to that level and beyond? And how do you get someone who's in so much trauma from a, an abuse, whatever, how do you get them to that point? What do you do? What are the cycles of time involved? So what I found was that in 21 days, if you deliberately and intentionally and work on this, where you're using your conscious veto power, where you're tapping into the non-conscious, which is different to the conscious, and we can define those in a moment so we don't talk about too many things at the same time. But if you, if you, as, if you deliberately and intentionally are going to focus on, okay, this is the pattern. The pattern is... X, Y, and Z, not functioning like you used to. What is the pathology? What is your communication pathology? In other words, what are you saying? What are you doing? What are you feeling? What are your perspectives? What, what is the pattern that is playing out in your overall relationships? And there's always going to be multiple. Generally, we'll think of three or four in one shot. As I'm saying this, people will think of three or four, maybe more. But then you take of those, you say, okay, which is the most dominant that's stopping me achieving what I know I can contribute, all the goals and visions and whatever. And, and, uh, um, then from there, you take the most dominant pattern and you start saying, okay, now let's unpack that pattern and start seeing what are the signals of that pattern. And then from the signals, you then tune in because these signals are coming from this. From the signals, you can then dig into what is your interpretation? What is the data here? What are you thinking, feeling, and choosing? What are the emotions? What are you, how are you seeing yourself? How are you seeing your vision of this thing? Which then takes you to, takes you to the tree trunk, which is what distorted thinking process happened you know, that, that I produce this as a coping mechanism. It's not sustaining me. It's actually affecting me. But where did it come from? And then you get to the roots. But that is going, that process is going to take daily work of about 15 to 45 minutes for about 21 days, around about three weeks. So that's kind of the initial healing of the blister. It's the finding of the basic thing. And it's starting to get to this level of deep intuitive thinking. And, and that creates all this connection in the brain. And the, as you're doing these the steps of the neurocycle to do all of this that I've just described, you are forcing your brain into a very high level of functioning because at the same time as dealing with this toxicity, you're drawing on the wisdom, the wise mind, the optimism bias, the, 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 you're aligning all the psychoneurobiology to the point where resilience is increasing. So you may be crying, screaming, shouting, more depressed, more anxious, but it's different because it's, it's a pain that is coming from the work that you're doing. It's like if the hot lava pours out, it's still hot. It's still, it's not cold yet. So in the heat, it can get worse and can burn out fields and can burn. So you're starting to reveal the pain. And so in that 21, first sort of 21 days, you are getting a deep revelation of um, almost getting worse, but it's progress. It feels may feel like you're going backwards, but you're going forwards. Because if you see the reason for your pain, that's a shock. And depending on how suppressed, how much you've denied, how much you've done to, just to cope, there's no judgment here. There's no guilt. There's no, you did something wrong. If you've been traumatized as a child, you did nothing wrong. If you've been hurt in, in a marriage, or if you've been hurt at work, or you've been experiencing any kind of war trauma, and you are manifesting these pathologies in your life, that is not your fault. That is not who you are. How you are showing up is a manifestation of what has happened. And therefore, you kind of need to step back into a wise mind, which we can all do if we know how to, and then analyze it in this way that I'm saying. So 21 days is, is kind of the point at which you'll realize, okay, this is my pattern. I'm starting to see the detail. I'm starting to see part of the roots. 
the deeper and more complex the trauma and the longer it's been there, the, the, the more it, it won't be as clear. So you're not going to see all the roots. You'll see, okay, that part sticking out of the ground. That part's still underneath. You'll see there's a bit of tape over this over here. That part's still not been revealed, but maybe this part's been revealed. And then you start reconceptualizing that, and it's a little green tree that you built. So it's not big. It's just a little one. But that that the green is healthy. So I know the pain. I know that I'm not depression or I'm not anxiety or I'm not this or I'm not that or I'm not my behaviors. Those were signals of, I know that I did that because of, and that's on how I wanted to play out. I want to see this differently. I want to be able to sustain a relationship. I want to have my creativity back again. I want to believe that there's a future, whatever it may be, whatever that looks like, but it's tiny. And that tiny, that tiny is, has got to compete with something you spoke about earlier on when you, were, when you were summarizing what I had said, is that there's trillions of thought trees with billions of memories inside of it. Because one thought tree can have thousands of memories. And you've been building these since a certain point in the womb. So there's a lot. So this has got to compete with a lot of other thoughts. I mean, you can't even see it in this if you put it inside there. So in order for this to compete with this, I have to stabilize this and I have to grow it. So that's what I wanted to find. How do you do that? Because we saw what we call gamma peaks in the brain at this day 21. And, and we saw, and a gamma peak is where learning takes place. When, when there's stabilized um, neuroplasticity happening. So when, when you build something new and it's, it's, looks like it's going to stay there. We see what we would call a lot of gamma activity in the brain across the left and the right side. Not just gamma, you'll get all the others as well, but you'll see these peaks of gamma, which is evidence for us that there's a, a, a frequency shift that means that you're, and, and it's associated with very strong neuroplastic changes. Let, let me quickly give you an example of what this looks like in terms of not strong. So if you listen to this podcast, um, a listener, and they don't do anything else with this podcast, most of the couple of thousand roots that I'm giving you data and, and your couple of thousand interpretations, because the roots are always the source, what you're hearing with experience, and the branches are always your interpretation of based on your, your, your existing memories. If you don't do anything with this, within 24 to 48 hours, most of what I'm saying and you're not discussing is going to be gone. And you're going to know, oh, there's something about trees and whatever. You'll remember something. And there's some work. But if you take the time to actually learn what this is, re-listen, get the material, do the stuff, you will then be pouring more energy into this and you will grow it into, into something that's sustainable. So what I found that to get that, so to get a gamma peak, you need these 63 days. Within 24 to 48 hours, we don't get gamma peaks. If you don't get gamma peaks, it's going to go. It's not the, that little that little thing that you've grown, that dendrite that you've grown that's made of thousands of proteins and vibrations and chemicals is going to just go away and transfer into heat energy. So 21 days enables us to do this basic conversion, but to now this is going to compete. We want this to actually impact us so that when we're in that next relationship, you don't, and, and, and you don't, uh, sort of um, what, what sabotage the relationship because you hate yourself. That Now, that's what you were doing. I'm just giving an example. So now you, you you don't hate yourself anymore. You understand why you were doing that. So it's not that you were sabotaging on purpose. There's not something wrong with you that you can't have a relationship. There was a reason why at certain triggers in the relationship you were pulling out or whatever, or saying things that were pushing people away when you didn't really want to push them away. So you don't want that, but this has got to grow. So now you have to practice growing this over another 42 days. So what that's we the 
focus, the focus thought gamma fertilizer for 42 days. There we go. For, exactly. So you do the same five steps of the neurocycle. So for the first 21 days, you're doing the neurocycle, which is five steps of mind-driven activity that changes the neuroplasticity. So you're actually directing how the changes are happening to grow this. That's 15 to 45. The second 42, it's five minutes. I and mean, that is not a lot. Five to seven minutes a day where you do the same five steps, but they slightly different. Same five steps that you just do less. And it's all in my book. It's also in the app. In the app, I literally walk you through with audio, video, script on exactly how to do this. So that extra 42 days is growing this. So at day 21, it looks like this. At day 42, it's going to look like this. But at day 63, it's going to look like this. Now we're talking. Now we have something that has sufficient energy to move from the non-conscious, which is the biggest, most intelligent part of us, of our mind. So our mind has the non-conscious, N-O-N, not unconscious. Unconscious is when you're knocked out by a baseball bat or an anesthetic. It's not a state of mind. It's basically a, it's basically, it's not a not part of mind. It's a, it's a it's a state where you are put into through a drug or being knocked out by a baseball bat or something. So so we've got to talk about mind as non-conscious, N-O-N, non-conscious, which is where all these thought trees, every single experience you've ever had is stored. It's dynamic. It works 24-7. It never stops. It's ongoing. It's your driving force. At the core is wisdom. And then everything around the middle of the forest, which is wisdom, are all your experiences. And the wisdom is what we've got to tap into. That's the wise mind. And the deeper we think within the neurocycle trains you how to do this, the more you get in touch with your wisdom. Then you use your wisdom to fix up the mess. And so by the by 63 days, all the way through, you've been doing this. You've been developing the wise mind to talk to the messy mind and work together as a team. And so um, then, then, then when, when we have what we call automatization, so we see at 21 days, gamma peak, and then we see a, a, a distinct change in the frequencies where as people are stabilizing, this is getting stronger and more and more powerful and more and more stabilized. So when it's stable, now you are doing it without thinking, but you actually are thinking. It's your non-conscious mind is pushing it into your conscious mind and you can now autom automatically draw on that. But it doesn't mean that it's a stupid memory. Automatic almost implies robotic. It's phenomenally intelligent. It's just that right. it's slipped into that quantum state that you don't need to consciously manipulate it anymore, which you did in the initial state. The initial 21 days is very much manipulating in a good sense until you get to this point. And that's, that's kind of that we're in the flow state then, right? We're unconsciously competent. We've created that behavior there. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, Exactly. So think, think of learning to drive. Jeff, this is just a super quick example. Think of learning to drive. At first, it's like, and you've taught your kids to drive. We've got four kids. When you're teaching them to drive, they're all adults now. You're thinking everything is like you stole the car. It's everything. It's too much. Then suddenly you can drive. And every time you get in the car now, you don't, you just get in the car, you drive. Yeah, but it doesn't exactly. mean that it's not a very intelligent action. It is because the driving experience today is different to yesterday. You've got new roads, new people on the road. So you are drawing on this. And as right. you, it's, you're drawing on this established one. Before you learned to drive, you didn't have this. But now you've got this. Right. You see, that, that's the principle. That's that healthy, successful neural pathways that are being created with that. Exactly. That and if it's a toxic version, that drives the toxic habits. If we don't deal with that and we keep growing this, this can also get enormous. And that can drive us. And then and we that drive drives you into, and using the metaphor, that'll cause you to drive into the ditch. Exactly. Totally. <laughs> often. And then you crash. Well, in honor of your time, I do want to have you back on. But I want, before we go today, I want to give people direct re, you know, resources. And we're going to have you back on because i got so many other topics we need to talk about. Wonderful. I've got a lot we, we've got to unpack here. But So I want people to go to drleaf.com. 
That's the best website, and you can get a lot of resources there. Her most recent book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, go check that out. She gets a lot of examples on here. There's the picture, beautiful. And the NeuroCycle has an app, and you can go onto the App Store, Google Play, iTunes, get the app, and it actually gives you these exercises on how to do exactly what Dr. Leaf was just talking about. we just, we, I feel like we just scratched the very top of the surface of what we can accomplish on this show together. So if you would honor us to come back again, um, I'll have Jenny reschedule some time and I really have a lot more to talk to you about, but you're doing amazing work. I told you that I would honor your time today to get you to your next uh, episode that you're going to record. Thank you very much for being on the Driving Change podcast. And I can't wait to see what our folks are going to do with some of this. And we'll have you back on to go in even deeper on all of these these subjects. So thank you for being on. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Jeff. And I just want to encourage people that we showed with our research, most recent clinical trials that I've put into this book, that when you do this, this is not just, this is, this is based on research. Everything I'm telling you is based on scientific research. We showed that our patients and our subjects would have an 81% increased ability to manage their mind using the system. And if you're managing your mind 81% more efficiently, that means if something happens to you during the course of a day or a trauma pattern is, is, is starting to manifest, you are 81% more able to manage that. Therefore, that overwhelm, that burnout, that feeling I just can't cope, I don't want to live, that goes away. You then have a way of moving forward. And, you know, that's what helps people achieve their goals and be human. And operate in purpose, right? That's the key. Exactly, exactly. Thank you so much for letting me on. Well, we're going to get into this more. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.